You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today on this glorious early summer afternoon. The weather when I left Brunswick East was completely different. It was 18 degrees and raining. And then I arrive here uh, at the beautiful M Pavilion and it's sunny. And what an appropriate um, uh, illuminated situation to talk about light and living in a lit world. Um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Yulukut Willem as the traditional custodians of the unceded land on which we meet. Uh, we pay our respects to their land, ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. I'm delighted uh, today to uh, be able to convene this panel on living in a lit world. Um, we're, we're, we have an incredibly rich intellectual community here in Melbourne, uh, including the three people who are joining me today. Uh, my name is Shanti Sumartoyo. Uh, I'm an Associate Professor of Design Research at Monash University. Um, and I am joined by Sarah Pink, who's a professor of design and emerging technologies and the director of the emergency of the <laughs> emergency of the emerging technologies research lab at Monash University. Sarah's a world-leading design anthropologist and she's known for her development of innovative digital, visual and sensory research and dissemination methodologies. Her research focuses on emerging intelligent technologies, automation, data, digital futures, safety and design for well-being. Sitting next to Sarah is the inimitable Tim Edensor, a cultural geographer from Manchester Metropolitan University, where he's a professor in the Institute of Place Management. He's currently a visiting scholar at Melbourne University. Among Tim's many books is 2017's From Light to Dark, Daylight, Illumination, and Gloom, which takes an unprecedented look at how illumination and darkness shape our experiences across history and space. Tim's currently finishing a book about urban materiality and stone in Melbourne, but he's not allowed to talk about that today, no. Tim. Okay, no. All right, and finally, I'm delighted to welcome all the way from Denmark, Mikael Biller, who's an associate professor at Roskilde University. His research interests lie in how culture shapes the transition from one type of technology to another. Mikael is the director of the new project Living with Nordic Lighting, which concerns the experience of city lighting and explores how urban spaces in Oslo, Copenhagen, and Stockholm are felt, used, and designed through lighting. And this is only the latest piece of work that uh, Mikael has done on lighting. So today I've asked the panelists to talk about light and lighting design and how it's part of the everyday life of the city. But more importantly, the speakers here today all adopt a perspective on lighting design that is focused on how it's experienced. That is, rather than starting from design, they start from the impact and effects that such design has. Or at least that's what I hope they're going to say. <laughs> However, <laughs> they may not. <laughs> of course, the, those aspects of experience that move beyond design that exceed or complicate it um, are something that light, I think, is especially good at helping us think through. So I'm going to ask Mikkel to start, then Tim, and then Sarah, each about 10 minutes, and then um, we can have questions from the floor um, and continue the conversation until about 2 o'clock. Thank you. Go ahead, Mikkel. Right. Thank you. It's easy to forget sometimes that we live in a lit world, that it hasn't always been like this, and especially when it comes to the city. You see, a, not so many centuries ago, it was dark most places, or at least only uh, it would be um, lit in, in the city center, around the high streets or in the areas where the rich people lived. They could afford the lighting. So one of the interesting things about um, electrical lighting in, in particular is that it's become the symbol of development. So we see these NASA photos where you can, can see where do we have urban development, and it is reflected by nighttime, where do we have uh, electrical lighting. So one of the interesting things about public lighting or urban lighting has been that it's on the one hand uh, connected to development of, of cities and on the other hand it's also very closely connected with uh, security. So from the early days of, of lighting uh, it's been connected with the police and ideas about uh, informants and light bearers being informants and so on. And this idea about lighting and security has been dominant all the way up through the 19th and 20th cen uh, century. 
the idea is if someone is uh, afraid or if there's a lot of uh, criminal activities, we need more light. Even if the assaults appear at daytime, we need more light uh, in areas. I've heard of a, a recent case here in, in Melbourne as well where there'd been a, a, an assault where even though it was at daytime, the, the solution was more light uh, at night. So there's something really interesting about the way we use light to, to shape the urban spaces and ideas about um, safety and, and security. But one of the things that has happened during the uh, 20th century is is that there the becomes a kind of geography of, of lighting. Because if you have areas where there are social problems, then you would the, the first engineering tool would be to put more light on it. But it also means that you can kind of carve out spaces where you have social problems. So if there's a lot of light certain areas in the social housing, you know that it's because there are social problems. You need to be able to see the people on CCTV and so on. Now that's been the story of the 19th, oh, sorry, 20th century, um, especially the, the latter part of it. But one of the things that has been really interesting for the last, well, 15 years or so is that we have these new technologies that have uh, enabled us to light up spaces in radically different ways. Um, and that means that on the one hand, we, uh, we have this uh, tradition of having either high streets with a lot of light or social areas or uh, areas with social problems with a lot of light. And then the more affluent areas are now places where, well, you have the privilege of darkness, where there's not that many problems, which is an interesting shift compared to the early days where the, area, the affluent areas were the ones that had lighting, uh, was a, a privilege. But with the new technologies, we also have new possibilities of lighting for different tasks, that is, you could say it's a more aesthetic lighting, a way of lighting where it is not necessarily just about security. It's about how spaces can feel in, in different ways. But one of the interesting things, and especially in Northern, uh, Northern Europe, where lighting design has, has really um, developed over the last, uh, well, 10, 15 years, is that with this new technologies also comes the emergence or consolidation of new professions. So what was early on mostly lighting engineers doing the lighting in a kind of engineering kind of way, we need more light, so here you go, here's a spread light. With the, uh, with the new technologies, we have an increasing amount of possibilities to, uh, to design lighting in, in, in more aesthetic ways. So you have uh, most of these previous uh, light engineer uh, companies now have a, a huge amount of uh, lighting designers and different lighting professions also uh, attached to it. So it means that within the last decade or so, there's really been a proliferation of aesthetic lighting in the city. It's no longer just spread light, it's no longer just what are the limits of what we can do technologically, but it's also about making an uh, aesthetic impact. Of course, there's still that social side to it because they still have problems in, social, in certain social uh, housing areas or areas like parks and so on, which means that all of a sudden we still have the, the influx of lighting design as a way to uh, curb with social issues, but now just done in a more aesthetic way. So one of the, uh, the things I normally mention when I meet the uh, city planners and so on in Copenhagen is that that if you take a map and plot out where do we have the most aesthetic and the most designed lighting, it is a map of where do we have social problems. So it's the ghettos around the, uh, around the um, Copenhagen and so on that will have this very elaborate uh, uh, kind of uh, lighting design. And it's a lighting design that's very much centered on um, like theatrical uh, expressions. So you would have small uh, spotlights and red and green and different kinds of colors. In a way, you could say that they, they are trying to do something different than just trying to uh, show a, uh, a kind of uh, engineering, social engineering, spread light uh, approach. But even though it is an aesthetic approach, that narrative of security is still underlining uh, the, the, whole, um, the whole area. So uh, a dominant narrative in, uh, in, um, in lighting and lighting design has been that issue of security. Now what 
we are trying to do in, in our project is to say, well, it's all well and good with security, and we, of course, accept that lighting and safety are, are closely connected. But there are also other ways to think and talk about lighting. And what we do is that we go out and talk to, uh, to people who live there. We, uh, we make observation in the spaces, and sometimes we even move in in some of these areas and live for a couple of weeks to, realize, or to, to investigate how does it actually feel to be in that place. So if it's not about safety, what is it that people do there, and who does it? Because there may be a huge difference between something being aesthetically pleasing to look at and then being aesthetically pleasing to be in. So many of these areas, we meet people who, um, who are saying that they accept that this is, is really an architecturally successful place, but I wouldn't use it as a recreational area. So people who live there are, in a sense, even more alienated from the area because they get uh, lighting design in that has a very certain kind of aesthetics, which may not necessarily live up to the ideas of, of, of the people there. So when we, if you approach lighting and lighting in the city from, a, from a, the perspective of, of it not being about security, you all of a sudden get so many different stories about what it means to be in a city. So we talked to people who would say, oh, I really like to sit in the dark patch over there. And then just to be able to, to sit and chat with my friend or my wife. And then I can still look out at, at the people who are uh, then in the, in the streets and uh, running around playing and so on. The, so one version is to say people actually use the darkness for certain things, perhaps not by sitting in a bush somewhere completely concealed, but just on the perimeter of where the light and the darkness is, because it solicits certain kinds of atmospheres for, for people that they enjoy, which is not about security and safety, but which is about being in the city in a, in a particular way. We have people who like to come down to, to sit on a square, just to, to be on the perimeter of one of these uh, lamps, uh, or, or these uh, spotlights, and then just watch and feel what the city is like for them when they're there. That's on the, on the more, you could say, um, contemplative uh, side of, uh, of lighting design or perception of lighting design. But of course, light also uh, solicits play and conviviality in, uh, in many ways. So in Copenhagen, there's the idea that within five years, people need to spend, I think it's 20 or 25% more time outdoors. And lighting is, of course, a key issue there in a country where, at this point, <laughs> well, it would almost be dark by now. So at 3.30, the sun sets in Copenhagen at this time of year. It means that there are so many hours that could potentially could be used if it wasn't for the crappy weather. So there's something about trying to say that light can actually do things and perhaps safety is not the first thing. Maybe it can uh, solicit playfulness or ways of being together in, in ways that then produce uh, a feeling of safetyness or safety for, for other people. And, and that way of approaching lighting, not just as an individual psychological element, but also as a way where people socialize. It may even be ways where people identify areas in a certain way, as this is the Latin quarters defined by their lighting, or this is a really cozy, nice place to be, even at 11 o'clock in the winter, uh, uh, because, the, um, because the lighting has a certain uh, character and gives identity the, to the place, which is also recognized by the social uh, segments living there, is really important. And when I mention social segments, it's because we intentionally go from... Um, and, and investigate all segments of, of society. So we live, uh, we interview the homeless who live in, in certain areas, and they may not necessarily like the kind of atmosphere that a, a good middle-class white man uh, likes uh, in, in, in the same way. So what kind of aesthetics is it actually that different segments of society appreciate or don't appreciate? So what we basically try to do is to say, we live in a lit world, but that lit world is also shaped by uh, these. Uh, so it's shaped by and shapes the social life of people living there, and it's way beyond uh, safety. Safety might, at best, just be a byproduct of how people live in a lit world. Thank you, Mikkel. That was great, and without notes as well. <laughs> yeah. 
you've, you've opened up an incredibly rich kind of range of things for us to sort of talk about s jumping off from safety and feelings of uh, security in, in cities and making it into something much, much more complex and also folding darkness and considerations of darkness into it, which I know is something Tim is interested in. Tim, next 10 minutes? Yes, uh, and I'd like to pick up on one of the things that Mikkel mentioned was that at the, in the middle of the 19th century, the world, it's very hard for us to imagine now, but the world was primarily dark. But then also, what, I, what I'd like you to consider and try and imagine is the coming to the city of first gas and then electric light. And this was just an extraordinarily radical transformation in people's lives. And not only was it an amazingly radical transformation, but it was also, as we can imagine, really enthralling. There's new forms of light, new spaces, new artifacts and buildings in the sea were suddenly illuminated. The city was awash with color and light. And that must have been extraordinary. However, I think what's happened over the course of the 20th century, and Mikkel touched on some of these points, is that lighting then tended to be taken over by technocrats. And so solutions to lighting tended to be all about standardization. How much light do we need to be cast upon this particular area of ground along this street to make people feel safe? It became a quantitative exercise full of engineering solutions. And in some ways, I think, what got lost was, as Mikkel was talking about, the aesthetic, playful, enthralling, desirable qualities of light. It became purely a technical matter. And of course, as Mikkel also inferred, this notion of uh, electricity, of, of electric light, to start with, to go back to the 19th century again, it, of course, the 19th century city, or the late 19th century city, wasn't really awash with light in the same way that our cities are now. But rather, areas of gloom stood out against these kind of extremely luminous areas. Uh, but now, the, there's a problem in many cities that we might call over-illumination. That light is the, the, the desire, modern desire, uh, for illumination is to make sure that it persists everywhere, that everything is illuminated. Uh, and I think we're moving beyond that. And that, what I'd like to say is that I think with the advent of the new technologies that Mikkel was talking about, and allied with that, the emergence of new creative and artistic potentials, we stand at the threshold of a kind of new lighting revolution, is that the world's changing very quickly, I think, in ways that it just hasn't for, for over 100 years. Um, <clears throat> now, my... Um, focus, or one of, the one of the things that I've been particularly interested in, is given this kind of emergence of new technologies, new approaches, new aesthetics, is how might light contribute to the making of place, to, the, to fostering a sense of place in all sorts of distinctive ways. And so I want to kind of identify five ways in which light might enhance place in all sorts of ways. And I, and I like to think about this as... as, as the kind of opposite of standardization is that now we have uh, at our disposal a multiplicity of ways in which we might illuminate places of all different kinds. Uh, now, certain approaches, certain design approaches focus on master planning. And in such designs, there's an intention to create a kind of homogenous design that covers the city. So particular kind of streets, are illuminated with particular kinds of lights right across the city, uh, for instance. But I, I'd, I'd like to kind of go beyond that. I'd like to think we can, we can do better than that. And uh, so there are five things that I want to talk about. First of all, we can introduce, and as is happening quite a lot now in many cities, interesting and artistic installations into cities that completely transform a sense of place after night. After all, when we think about design, why, would you only, why do we mainly think about what the city looks like in the day? Why don't we think about what it looks like at night? These potentialities are so enormous. And so, for instance, uh, different light works and artistic installations uh, are put up in the city that kind of contribute to a sense of place. Uh, and there's one really good example in Melbourne, actually, at the, in Docklands, at the corner, at the very angular corner of Burke Street and Collins Street, uh, is a really interesting uh, installation called the Lighthouse, which registers the forthcoming weather for Melbourne. So it takes the weather forecast minute by minute, and it adapts 
the, the, uh, what's going to happen the next day by creating all sorts of colours that flash on the outside of the building in quite spectacular fashion. So here we have a kind of light installation that is integrally linked to a notion of place identity. The second thing is our, instead of just thinking about new forms of lighting, we might also think about what lighting has existed before. And in some ways, we might think about lighting as a species of heritage. Uh, so let's not just get rid of everything in the, in the pursuit of the new. Let's think about older forms of lighting that convey a sense of what was before. After all, there is often, with the kind of advent of LED, a kind of overwhelming desire to replace all lighting. But if we think about Melbourne once more, there are two particular sites that I'm, I'm especially fond of, as I imagine lots of people here are. One is Bulsari's Corner on Ligon Street, where there's a beautiful neon design of 1930s uh, Olympic Italian cyclist, Bulsari. And then also, probably even more famous, is the Skipping Girl in Richmond. And those installations certainly bestow a kind of quite profound sense of place uh, on, on, those, on those streets. Thirdly, and I've looked at this quite a lot, I'm really interested in light festivals, and there's been an absolute surge in the emergence of light festivals over the last 20 years. Light festivals of all different sizes. Some enormous, like White Night or Sydney's Vivid, some much smaller, like Little Lantern Parades. Now, in Melbourne, I'm, I'm sure most people will be aware of White Night, which, during which hundreds of thousands of people pour onto the street to see temporary installations uh, across the city, large, spectacular uh, installations as well. And some, this gets a bit of a bad press, I think. People complain about the sort of log jams, you know, the huge numbers of people in the city. There are all sorts of kind of complaints that people simply passively behold these extraordinary spectacles. I like to think about uh, White Knight as something far more generative than that in creating a sense of atmosphere in bringing people together. But there are also smaller light festivals where incredibly creative things are done at a much more modest level. Uh, and, and for me, and, and me and Shanti have written about this and we've done research on it, is the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, where about 36 projections are cast on two blocks along Gertrude Street in a, a quite bewildering variety of ways, incredibly inventive ways, change all the time. Uh, and these in index, in some ways, what lighting can do in bestowing a sense of place, albeit temporarily uh, in, particular in particular locations. Fourthly, I don't want to neglect the everyday forms of lighting that might be dispersed throughout the city. What about really inventive forms of street lighting, different colours, different shapes, different fixtures that demarcate the distinctive qualities of particular areas? How might we think more creatively uh, in that way? Um, how might we make light multiple in that sense? And then finally, and the, the final thing that I, that I want to talk about, and Mickle's already alluded to, is the idea that we can use light to create spaces of congregation. That we are a bit like moths to the flame when certain kinds of illumination are placed in central or even sort of suburban areas, people gather under inventive lighting. Uh, and especially if they're kind of uh, accompanied by, you know, particular light installations or creative installations, people gather at these places. So they create a sense of uh, conviviality at night. So there's lots of things that lighting can do. We are, as I said, I think on the threshold of this kind of emerging multiplicity. Uh, and, and it's really salient to be aware of just how many possibilities there are through the deployment of light in, in all sorts of progressive ways. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. I really like what, 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 what emerges from what you said, that is this sense of, uh, of, of uh, progressive almost politics of light, right? Of using it in a way that can draw people together, that can do social, social work of kind of um, bringing, bringing positive forms of interaction to public spaces, which is a really, it's a really kind of hopeful yeah. um, take on what, on what light in the city can do. Okay, and our final 10 minutes from Sarah Pink. Thanks. Thank you. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit differently about light because Tim and, and Mikkel are absolutely, you know, the world's experts on, on light. Um, and I think that they've, they've studied light in, in a very different way to me. So much of my research about light has actually been about how light emerges in, in other 
situations or when I'm researching other things. So a lot of my work is about human experience, how people experience specific environments, and then what comes together to constitute those experiences. And the reason why I've become interested in light then is specifically because I've found that light has always been integral to the particular environments that people live in, to their experiences and, and to the way that, to what, and it's part of what they bring forth when they show me what their lives are like and when I, I observe and, and listen to what they, they show me and what they talk about when they're talking about everyday life and experience. Now, so one of the things I'm very interested in is how we feel in our environments and particularly in how we might feel good or feel right or how we might generate a sense of well-being. And again, light is something that's come into the projects where I've considered those kinds of questions in, in a really fundamental way. The other thing that I've also started to think about light in relation to is the concept of the lit world. The, the world being a world that actually light and the way that it's lit, not only through electric lighting, but also through daylight, is integral to the way the worlds are constituted by designers, by planners, but also by ordinary people in their everyday lives as they go about trying to make their environments feel a particular way. And the way I have about speaking about that way that people make their environments feel is just about feeling right. So not feeling spectacular, not feeling important, not feeling absolutely amazing or singing all the time, but just feeling right, feel, things feeling good enough, things being the way that we want them to be so we feel like we can continue with our everyday lives and feel comfortable and feel happy. And for me, that's very often the starting point of my research. You know, what is it that makes you feel right? Now, so thinking about that then as a context, about how we feel in our world, in our environment, the knowledge that light is always an integral part of that, but not just light, it's also about the way light comes together with sound, with things that we can see, things that we can touch, and all of those other elements, and people around us, who is there? What, what is it we need to make ourselves feel comfortable? So thinking about that a lot as context then, how do we actually feel good with light? What is it about light that might make us feel good? And um, so I've thought about light. I'm going to talk very briefly about two projects where I've, I've worked with people and they've brought light to the fore. The first one is the question of light in our homes. I know that Mikkel also has done a lot of research about light in the home, and when we have a, a more general discussion, I'm sure that he'd also have a lot to say in relation to, to questions about that. But in my work about the home, I, I often start the research by saying to people really, well, what do you need to make your home feel right? What is it in this particular room that is there when it feels right? And more often than not, they tell me what lighting they've used, what lighting they've have put in their room, which lights they do use, which lights they never use. Perhaps they have a room in which they never use the spotlights because they really don't want anything that glaring. They just want a much smaller light that makes that room feel good, makes them feel right in that room. And I started to think more and more about light in that context because were it, what were people using light for? Do people use light to actually see what's in front of them? Well, sometimes we do. Sometimes when you get to my age and you go into a restaurant and you realize that the writing on the menu is just not as good as the writing used to be. You really can't understand what's wrong with it. Well, you just grab the candle and you hold it up to the menu and it improves the menu because you can see it. So there are many instances in which we use light to actually see something very directly. But there are other instances in which light actually is about the way we feel in a place, but it's not what we're directly looking at or contemplating. And I discovered this in one of my projects when we were doing research with people who, this is a particular project, we wanted to understand really how people used energy in their homes. And you need energy to make your electric lights work. So one of the things we're very interested in is how people actually close their homes down at night in terms of switching things off and switching things on. So we asked them to show us their bedtime routines. And I want you to kind of just reflect, all of you, for a moment and think about what you do when you go to bed at night. And do you switch lights on and off? Yeah. And, and when you get up in the middle of the night, does anybody ever get up in the middle of the night? Yeah, and what's the first thing you do? Switch the light on? Who switches the light on? Do people switch the light on? And do you know where the light switch is if you are one of the people who does that? Yeah, because you always know where the light switch is in your own home. If you go and stay in a hotel and you wake up in the night, does everybody switch the light on then? So you're more likely to? Because it's dark. 
And do you really know, do you know where the light switch is? No, you're, like, you're grappling around on the wall or by the bed and you, you just can't find it because you don't know where it is. So there's some things in our lives that we just know where they are at home. Just like you know how to walk up the stairs in your own home without thinking about it or looking at the stairs. So what was so curious about the way people used light then when they went up to bed at night from being downstairs in their living rooms up to, up to bed was that they did use light, but they didn't use light because they needed it to see where they were going because they already knew where they were going. But they actually needed light for specific things. So in one case, a guy needed light to undo, take his shoes off so he could see his shoelaces. But he didn't put the light on to use that. He borrowed a light that he'd switched on that was going to go off automatically that was on in another room. And then another guy put the light on. He was sitting there in the living room watching TV with a cat. He switched the light on when he left the room. And then he... He told me that there was, it was important that he'd done that. He went into the kitchen, and he let the cat out, came back in and went back into the living room. He said, well, look, I put the light on because I needed to do something to the TV. And I put the light on so I'd remember that I had to go back into the room. So he didn't need the light to see anything. Anyway, then he switched the light off. He went upstairs and he put the light on downstairs while he walked up. But once he got up, the light that he'd put on, he actually switched off. And he went into the bathroom and went into his bedroom. And to go to bed then, he didn't put the light on, but he used, the, he used his phone as a light. So not his light on the phone, which has many other interesting uses that we could talk about as well, but, but actually used his phone as a light. So we start to think about, well, what do we really use light for and, and how are lights used in our homes? It's not about switching lights on, on the wall so we can see things. We use lights in really complex ways to navigate our ways around our environment, to think about what we're doing, and to feel comfortable and to feel okay. So we need to look a little bit deeper under that question of what, what's light for? for it's, it's for so many things in our lives. So the second project I want to talk about is one that we've concluded recently, and um, it's part of the project that I worked on mainly with Melissa, who's here. Shanti was also involved in an earlier part of the project, and our colleague, Lorreen Vaughan from RMIT, was also one of the co-investigators with me on the project. And in, in that project, the project was called Design for Wellbeing, and our research was about how people felt in a new, newly built hospital. So we're really looking at how a new environment impacted on the way that people felt at work, both the staff and for patients and visitors. And in the new hospital, it had been specifically designed because it's known that light can increase the way that people feel good in hospital environments, both patients and visitors. There's been a lot of research about that. A lot of the research has involved surveys and short interviews and questionnaires. So a lot of that research doesn't get into the surface, under the surface about how people feel. But the architects and the designers and the people who commissioned the hospital knew very well that they needed in order to enable well-being, to make sure there was a lot of light. So the hospital has an amazing big atrium, and all the people who we interviewed commented on how walking into work, into a light-filled space, made them feel so good. And it does feel good when you arrive at a workspace that's beautiful or lit so beautifully that you just feel, yeah, this is such a pleasure to walk into. But the hospital also had a series of courtyard spaces which were full of light and had big windows looking into the indoor areas, which also people love because the light enabled people to feel differently, to feel better, and to, to have that sense of well-being. Also, the corridors that had light seeping into them were so deeply appreciated by our participants. Now, one of the really interesting things, though, about being an anthropologist, which I am, is that you could take a lot of that at face value and say, yes, yeah, so everybody wants more light, and more light always makes people feel good and makes people feel better. And on one level, that's true. But the other really interesting thing that we found was related to people's professional values and what makes you feel, feel, feel good about being a good professional. And as a member of the clinical staff in a hospital, as a nurse, then your patients are so important to you, their well-being, and the way that they feel good is important to you. And so most of the staff had offices with no daylight coming into them. They were pretty happy about the way that they were artificially lighted, and they loved their offices. But they didn't really complain a lot about the fact there was no natural light in their offices because they felt it was so important that the patients experienced daylight and that the areas where they worked with the patients were well lit. So it's really interesting to note that, to just see how people's professional values and what matters to them 
really underpins the way that they experience their everyday environments as well. We don't just experience the sensory aspects that are put there for us. We always experience them in relation to who we are, what we believe is really important, but not just for us, for those people around us as well. So I think I'll end there. Um, I think what I've said is really tied up so well with what everybody said before, and I, I want to just remind us again that bringing that human perspective, what people feel and what they say, and what people really do, rather than what they tick off on questionnaires, that quantification that Tim and Michael have referred to, alluded to as well, we need to go beyond that and just look at how people really, really do live in a lit world, how they improvise in it, how they feel in it, and what matters to them in it. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Amazing. You, this is, it's, it's the dream panel from my point of view, certainly, but uh, what, what, I, what, I, what I love about what Sarah just said is that light now becomes something that we're that is that is folded into everyday life and that makes things possible but that's also used in creative and often unexpected ways to do certain kinds of work that aren't even necessarily related to light but that light is still um, implicit in so i will in a minute um, ask for questions but while you're all formulating your questions there is one question that i would like um, each of you on the panel to address uh, just for sort of one or two minutes and that is what do designers, lighting designers, city planners, um, metropolitan authorities, what, if you could tell them one thing about light, what is it that you think they need to know to improve, to change, to retain perhaps, go back to previous forms of lighting, whatever that is, what is sort of one thing that you think people need to know about light um, that can make our cities feel feel right, I suppose, feel good. Tim, you're, you're nodding. Do you want to start? Sure, but it, <laughs> I, I can, I'll have to do two things. I okay, can't go on then. decide them. First of all, of course, the city is riven with inequalities in all sorts of ways in the built environment, and those inequalities are often incredibly well manifest through illumination. And I think we need to think... It's kind of interesting to hear what you were saying about, the, about the, these social housing estates are actually well lit, uh, in Britain, it's certainly the opposite, where they're abjectly lit. Uh, and so this kind of incredibly uneven distribution of good lighting, very fine lighting in sort of upmarket uh, estates, tower blocks, very, very poor grade lighting in sort of social housing. So I think that's absolutely critical. I think that's the most important thing. But the second thing is, and light designers will say this, and they, they tell you this themselves, is that darkness is incredibly important to good light as well. Is that, in other words, if there's too much light light is ineffective because it's all experienced in a great big ambient wash where nothing stands out in particular ways. Uh, and if we can think about this very clearly about the lights that we've liked or that we see in the city, if good lighting is surrounded by darkness, it is obviously much more potent and powerful. Right. Um, yeah. I think, I think my starting point would... Yeah, somewhat banal for an anthropologist, but it, but but it is the idea that when you get a million dollars for a lighting project somewhere, instead of just trusting your own intuition as a lighting designer and the kind of values and aesthetics that you have, to spend ten thousand of those dollars and getting a good social scientist in and and kind of figure out just the basics of what is happening, because I see way too often this idea of creating something that is good to look at, something that looks nice in a uh, Facebook or LinkedIn profile, something they can win prizes on, which is all great. But how is it to be in it? And does that sense of being in it actually contribute to some of the ideas about what is a nice place for the people who use it and live in it. So, of course, it's, it's, it's difficult to figure out who, who will live here in five years' time. But one thing is for certain, most likely it is not the same aesthetic values as um, a middle-class lighting designer who is very much focused on lighting has. And, and just uh, as the second part of it, because you, you, uh, you highlight the, uh, the darkness, I would say yes, light and darkness, but also all the other things. Gloom, glare, luminance and, and reflections and shade and so on. Try to see light, uh, light as lightness instead, instead that in, in encapsulates all these different elements that can really trigger our emotions and our sense of identity of place. 
Hey, so Mikkel took my answer. So I'm actually... <laughs> but, but I'm not going to say something different. I'm actually going to just reiterate what Mikkel said, but, but by adding a few things as well. So I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them what to do. I would actually tell them to listen to what the people tell them to do. But not just by doing a survey, not just by asking some other light designers what they've done in a different place, but actually by listen, really listening to people, really understanding that in-depth um, context in which people live in and use light and how people feel light. And, and also stealing Tim's point as well, across that whole diversity of different people and the inequalities that already exist in the context where you're going to be lighting. So light shouldn't solve problems of inequality. We should solve problems of inequality, but we should use the process of lighting design to help us in that and to assist us in those ways of actually improving societies and, and the worlds that we live in. So, and how to do that? I think for me, it's, it's about what I talked about. It's about going under the surface, but it's about finding that anthropological twist, that thing that you didn't expect to find out. So if you do a survey, all you're going to do is get the answers within the categories of the questions that you already asked. You're not going to learn anything new. You're just going to find out what you thought you were going to find out across a continuum of yes, no's, and whatever's. So get under the surface. Actually get that twist, that thing you thought you, you had no idea that you were going to learn. So for me, in the hospital projects, I had no idea that the staff were going to tell me that they wanted the patients to have the light because in the building, you can't have windows in all the rooms because big buildings just can't offer that. That question that we... we that what I found in homes, that people actually used light in all kinds of ways that seemed so bizarre when, when they thought about it, when they went to bed at night. But those ways of using light were super meaningful to them. So... Use that's, that's what you need to know if you're going to design for better lighting for cities where inequalities are, are suppressed and, and we get much more equal and better ways of living. Thank you. Thanks, panel. All right, so you've had some time to think about the questions that you have for the panel. Thanks, Shanti. Great panel. I have a follow-up question which is about non-humans and how we can include them in the design of lighting, particularly when we can't ask them and we can't, like I suppose we can study them, but you know, they obviously have very different needs to, to humans. I'm thinking about nocturnal animals, for example, in public spaces, but also insects. I did read on social media, a very highly reliable source, <laughs> that um, insects are increasingly getting wiped out by lighting and it's contributing to our biodiversity uh, crisis in Australia and elsewhere because they're attracted to the light and then they get confused and they die. So I'm just wondering how we can also consider other diverse forms of species and how as anthropologists maybe you would respond to that but also maybe other ways that you could think of to do that. Thanks. Yeah. 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 I'll take the first one. You'll, you'll take the same one. Well, I... Um, I was interviewing someone um, in, their, in their home and, and the question of lighting in the evening and animals came up, uh, domestic animals that is. So the rabbit they had at home, the, the dog and so on. So they would, they would let light on in the house because the, the dog was at home and needed to be able to see things. So in terms of energy consumption, you know, animals are, are part of, of that whole thing. And, and in terms of insects, I would say, much to the, the credit of uh, lighting designers, they are increasingly, at least in Scandinavia, uh, using um, different kinds of light to, to lower the uh, lighting pollution and, and putting on more uh, sort of like red light and guiding light on, on uh, bicycle path and so on, which doesn't in the same way uh, affect the, uh, the insects as much. I know in uh, America, in American cities, Tens and te tens upon tens of millions of birds are killed by colliding with large tower blocks that are illuminated. So we are talking about a massive scale of devastation here. And it's really important that you, you bring that up. And, and not only birds, but all sorts of other migrating species, uh, from insects to butterflies to salamanders. Uh, and, and the issue also kind of extends into kind of marine life as well, where vast quantities of, of fish... Uh, and marine creatures get totally disorientated by these increasingly uh, luminous 
shorelines and indeed the ships that go out. So we are talking about a gigantic problem here. And I kind of think it's worth remembering when we look at the city at night, that very alluring image of the illuminated tower blocks, symbolised, I guess, by kind of Manhattan's nocturnal skyline, that these things have a kind of incredibly malign effect. Uh, and so one sort of measure that's been taken recently is to actually turn the lights off or to lower the lights in Manhattan during migration season. And I think that's had some, some impact. But we might think maybe perhaps more seriously about what it, how, in, besides being incredibly wasteful, this kind of over-illumination is. And I kind of want to emphasise that. This is over-illumination uh, that also uh, stops us seeing the stars and uh, has also, is, is also injurious to human health as well. So excessive light is not only malign for animals, but also for humans and our, our sleep cycles and so forth. So it, it's worth taking that really, really seriously, I think. So thanks for raising it. Yeah, I mean, my answer is, I guess, a slightly different layer to this. And I think it's, we, we need to start thinking differently about the problems that we confront. And instead of thinking of small solutions, which become sticking plasters on, on small problems, we need to think a lot more holistically about the total environment in which we're living and the total environment that, that's being designed for. So, yes, definitely going beyond the human um, but also going beyond the, the question of what might be right for one particular group of humans in one particular moment. And, and, in, and in terms of research, investing research in, in such a way that confronts um, problems on a much different scale and, and, and engages interdisciplinary teams to confront those, those problems and, and to look at different ways of, of coping with them, dealing with them. Great. Another question? Not even a question you've thought about. Don't think about the question. Just a question. <laughs> just a question. Anything. Just the first one that comes out. <laughs> hey, um, I'm a lighting designer. Um, so I agree with what you're saying. Good stuff. Um, problem we have is trying to convince, I guess, everyone behind you. Yeah. Um, whether that be commercial clients or um, councils or, or whoever. Um, have you got any tips on, on how to do that? Because um, I'm all ears, personally and yeah. professionally. I think that one way to do it is to start thinking about, thinking differently about the way that your organisation functions in terms of the ecology of other organisations and groups. And um, I know I'm saying this from the position of somebody who works in a university, but teaming up with universities can really strengthen your position because we're not just a, a small organisation. We are a big global um, network. You know, we work with people from all over the world. Mikkel is over here visiting at the moment with all of his expertise through years of working on lighting it in several different countries, actually. Um, and um, we have access to people from a whole range of different disciplines with such different areas of expertise that can bring light to bear on, <laughs> on, on, um, on, on particular problems. So for me, I think that's, that's one of the ways that... Um, you know, universities can play a really important role in, in responding to the questions that people from outside universities have and adding a whole depth of strength and years of expertise and the breadth of expertise to, to those questions as well. So, yeah, come and talk to us. So, I'd say get networking with all sorts of different organisations as well. That kind of, And it's kind of really interesting what you say because nearly all the light designers that I've spoken to have really enlightened notions about how light should be. I'm, it's, I'm not surprised that you say that. It's, it seems to be almost ubiquitous. And so maybe what's really called for is a much more kind of substantively powerful kind of professional organization that advocates for these sorts of issues because it's so widespread. Just as a, <clears throat> as a, as a, more, a small notice that I often get a get invited out to talk with some of them in there in the road directorates and you know that kind of people and I'm luckily solidly planted in basic research so I'm invited because I can say what the others can't really dare to say because of politics and so on so there's an interesting way of engaging with other like companies and so on because they use me and I know they use me to say what they also wanted to say, uh, but just can't do it. So, uh, so also think about what possibilities it, it, it offers to bring in the social science, for instance, in, not just as a tick box. We got engineers, designers, social scientists, but also because they actually add something in that might be uh, valuable, even if it's critique that you don't want to hear.
Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I was going to ask a question that just came to my mind. So I'm a product designer, and then I tend to think about things in their materiality. So I wonder what are your thoughts about the materiality of the lighting devices? <laughs> so the light is what we've talked about, but where is that light coming from? And then how that could inform designers. Because for example, in the project of the hospital, we found that in the older people unit, the light switch was white in a white wall. And the contrast of color of the light switch, didn't, they couldn't find the light. So there were three days without the light. But it was not about the light, it was about the light switch. So what's that relationship between the materiality of where the lighting is coming from? Thanks. I think that raises a really interesting question about the um, about the whole materiality of light and lighting, and, and also something that I know that you know a lot about, which is waste and what happens to those lights and the, their components as well once they stop being used. So, again, um, I think that there's a, this kind of relationship between what's tangible and and what isn't tangible, and the, those aspects of that we can actually feel and, and touch. And I, I guess some of my work has been about light switches in the, in the project I talked about in the home. And um, how do we actually think of that materiality of, of lights and the light switch, not just as being a light switch, but actually being part of that tactile world and that wider tactile world that we're engaging with? Um, and how do all of those things come together? But, but with all the other things we've been talking about as well, like the you know the, the non-human aspects of our world and and also the the questions of the the other as dimensions of of light as well and more smart lighting systems and sensor technologies so there's a whole range of different things that that might really come together in in future lighting design and I I think that those questions and the materiality and the sensoriality can be much better informed as I said by actually understanding those aspects of being part of a wild, a sensory world that yeah, different people and differently able people can also have contact with and understand and feel their way through as well. Going back to Tim's point about um, equality. It's, it's really interesting though, it, the, the very notion about what's material and what's immaterial about lighting. So obviously we can kind of see the fixture, we can hold the bulb, the wires that it's connected to. But of course when we put the light on, what is that? And, and, and does it have a materiality? But what it also does is it transforms the materiality of everything that's around it. So, or, or at least our perception of those material elements on which it shines. So in terms of kind of the, the way in which we perceive the color of things, it's always radically different uh, according to which kind of illumination you use, you know, how, what the kind of intensity of light is. So the kind of way in which we think about materiality uh, and light is really, really complicated and very hard to get at. Not to mention that certain kinds of illumination or light is also bestowed with all sorts of kind of symbolic associations. Take, for instance, the traffic light. But that, there's lots of other ways in which we might think about how lighting is, has these kind of symbolic qualities, which go well beyond the kind of material. Uh, they, they, they might kind of connect to certain kinds of abstract thoughts or philosophies and so forth. Yeah, an example of the materiality of the light source would be in, in like five years' time from the uh, transition into the LED lamps in, in, in uh, urban areas and, and, and public spaces and so on. Especially one particular kind of lamp from a specific company uh, was really implemented everywhere where you had social housing. Uh, and I gave a talk once in a design company where uh, it, ended, uh, it showed in the end that one of the uh, people from the company was there. And I, I think I came to, the, uh, came to present it as, this is the, the policeman with the, uh, with the machine gun kind of lamp. That's the lamp. If you see that lamp, you know that this is an area with, uh, with social problems, simply because it was a well-produced lamp, and they used it everywhere on a pole with uh, this kind of spotlight down. And 
that is the problem with some of the materiality of the lamp, so, uh, of the lamp is that it comes with connotations. Uh, for instance, certain kind of lamps or certain kind of light had certain kind of connotations. And I, I know the guy wanted to sell more of them, of course, and I'm not, I'm not against that idea, but when you shift something in three or five years' time and every time you use the same kind of lamp, it creates a certain kind of uh, environment and sense of place. Thank you. We're up. Quickly, yeah. Hi, thank you all very much for your presentations today, for your talks today. I'm also a lighting designer, and I agree with everything you're saying. Great. Just closer to the... Uh, all right, thank you. You can hear me. So our city of Melbourne is growing very rapidly. Um, it's getting to a certain size, and it's getting much bigger, and it's growing faster than any other city in our country. It's smell still relatively small compared to many other cities in the world. What have you seen from other cities around the world that we should be implementing at a planning level both day and night to develop our city in the right direction as we grow very rapidly in the, in the coming years? I mean, the obvious thing to say is smart lighting is that we're in areas that are kind of new, the kind of vast new suburbs that are being created in Melbourne. Smart lighting can come into effect. So responsive lighting, lighting that responds to motion or to the level of light in, in, uh, that's available that kind of comes on and, but then is off when there's no humans around or when the light's of sufficient quality. So there are kind of ways in which, and, and lots more kind of interesting ways in which lighting, I mean, going back to Mickle's part of the world, lighting tends to be, to be much lower there or on kind of lower, lower level. So rather than having a big street light above you, the, the street lights tend to be, or, or the path lights tend to be about that high. And that kind of allows you to kind of perceive the surrounding environment much more equitably and it also kind of creates a sense of, it fosters a, a kind of more aesthetic connection to the darkness that surrounds. Yeah, I would go for the same, perhaps something about appreciation of darkness, and perhaps that's just Scandinavia, but an appreciation of what it is you can do with, with darkness and gloom in other ways. So you don't necessarily need like vast areas of horizontal surfaces being lit because you can actually, just in a place like this, have certain vertical lighting on, on certain places that allows you to see enough for you to, to pass there. So instead of just automatically thinking about more light, uh, you can actually do a lot if you appreciate darkness and try to mold darkness in ways that are not uncomfortable and, and does allow you uh, sufficient visibility uh, to see. Yeah, I... Most of my work now is about emerging technologies, so automated decision-making and artificial intelligence. And I, I think that going, especially with what Tim and, and Mikkel said, I think just to take that to another stage, be, be very aware of the, the new technologies that are becoming part of our lives and, and could potentially and, could, and will become part of our cities and try to understand how they can really come together with, um, with people and the way that people would like to also make decisions and, um, and work with artificial intelligence to actually really understand how, how light and darkness can play different future roles in our cities and roles that will generate modes of well-being, which might not be about more illumination, might be about different illumination, different timing and different temporalities of illumination, and um, ensuring that that, really, that that really works with human rhythms and the human rhythms that we can detect through new technologies and new data analytics, but also ensuring that there's decisions about how, those, um, how that data will be used and the way that it will be applied to lighting and to other urban systems is really synchronized with what people really want and what people really need and, and enabling people in their localities to play roles in making decisions about the way that future elimination will play part of their lives in ways that are environmentally sustainable and, and beneficial. Yeah, can I just add in? Because we tried it in, uh, in Denmark with the dimming at night uh, and then with a sensor that could sense if the person going there, then the, the light would uh, lit up uh, a little bit. And just, and I'm sure Sarah would uh, agree, just remember ideas about uh, surveillance and so on, because even though it sounds like a good idea that in the suburb somewhere no one is using it at night, so keep really limb, uh, dim lighting, then it, the sensor realizes there's a person going there. Mm -hmm. But all of the neighbors said, 
oh, why is she coming home so late? Because they could see, you know, they could see it shutting off all the way down. So ideas about surveillance, of course, also taps in. And I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be uh, surprised if, uh, if potentially they could have, you know, uh, recognition of saying how old is the person going there. So we use more lighting when it's an old person. It's all very tempting. I can see it, yeah. but. And that, with, with, with that example, we're just reminded how light and lighting are part of everything else that's happening as well. And so we need to see it as entangled in these sort of really complex and subtle ways of being together and living together in cities. Look, it's been a lovely hour here in the sunshine. Thank you ever so much for coming and joining us. Mikael Billa, Tim Edensor, Sarah Pink, thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.